Welcome to Meet an African Pastor podcast. My name is Anthony Seitzma, and in this podcast, I interview different African pastors so that people around the world can hear about what their lives are like and pray for them. And most importantly, this gives all of us an opportunity to learn from the African church. Thank you for listening. Welcome again to the podcast. I'm here with Pastor Conrad Mbewe. It's quite a privilege for me because he's one of the authors I like to read and the preachers I enjoy listening to. Conrad, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's great to get a chance to know you better. Can you tell us more about yourself, where you're located? Tell us about your family and your church. Yeah, thank you, Anthony, for having me uh, on this podcast. I'm glad it has finally worked out, and I will uh, surely uh, be grateful to God if there is ever another opportunity to to come on. Well, as I've mentioned, my name is Conrad Mbewe. I am situated in Lusaka, Zambia, where uh, I have spent the best part of my life. Um, I was brought up partly in the same city. I uh, did my university education in the same city and then went to work briefly in the Zambian copper mine and then came back again to this city in 1987 to become pastor of uh, the Kabwata Baptist Church. I'm married. My wife is uh, Felista. And uh, God has blessed us with six children. Three have been adopted in the African traditional sense. We don't uh, sign any legal documents. There are relations in the wider family who have lost parents and guardians. And consequently, the the clan uh, has then passed them on to us to raise them up. So we speak in terms of having six children three sons and three daughters, five of, of whom are married, and uh, we currently have uh, six grandchildren as well. So that's uh, to do with me, what I do, where I am, and my family. And I think your your ministry today is quite varied. Maybe it's uh, your ministry has evolved over the years. What are all the different things you're up to now? Yeah, uh, I am pastoring. That's definitely something that uh, one can speak about. But also I am um, uh, involved with the African Christian University where I am involved as, uh, uh, well, initially I was involved as the director, no, no, as the chancellor of the university. That was my first responsibility. Then I stepped down and became a director of advancement. Uh, with that out of the way, I am now largely uh, um, involved as well as the dean of the divinity school. So that's something else that I am very involved in. I'm trying to think beyond the university, there are a lot of other things. I, I write books. Uh-huh. So that also occupies me quite quite a lot. I I also maintain a radio ministry and also I'm a columnist in one of our national newspapers. 
So that also takes up a bit of my time. I I also am involved in all kinds of uh, uh, organizations, boards, training schools, both in Zambia and abroad. And, um, um, you know, orphanages and so forth. So there's a, a lot of... Uh, uh, activity that takes place around my life and then I preach uh, across the country, across the continent, across the world. Yeah, that's my life. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing about the different ministries that you're doing. Uh, I would love to, before we get more into the ministries that you're doing today, I would love to hear more of your testimony about how you came to know Christ. Yes, I was brought up in a church-going family. My uh, great-grandfather, in fact, on my mother's side, was uh, a, an indigenous missionary. And so uh, we were in um, the denomination that grew out of the missionary work of David Livingstone, uh, the famous uh, pioneer missionary. It was. It is called the United Church of Zambia. So I grew up in that church. Uh, it wasn't until 1979 that two things happened a few months earlier uh, than the day of my conversion that um, changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, one was the previous year in 78 in uh, September, my elder sister got converted. She had just begun her university studies, and there were some special meetings organized by the Lusaka Baptist Church, which she attended and got converted there. Then a few months later, December 78, I finished school, and a friend of mine wrote me an evangelistic letter. What my sister's conversion said to me was, if this what it means to be a Christian, I'm not a Christian. And then what my friend's letter said to me was, therefore, this is the way you become a Christian in the biblical sense, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, I struggled with that until March 1979, when it became fairly evident to me that I needed to deal with this matter once and for all. And so uh, on the 29th of March, I bought myself a Bible. And then on the 30th, uh, which was the following day, a Friday, I uh, went back to my friend's letter, read afresh. It was simply pointing me uh, to Christ to pray for salvation. And that morning in my bedroom, on my knees, I cried to the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. And he did so. Um, I did not at that point appreciate the seismic nature of what had just happened. But uh, obviously, with the passing of years, I've realized that I went from death to life, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God on that occasion. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, you, When you were talking about your background, Earlier, you mentioned something about working in the copper mines. I'm wondering, um, how does that uh, play into your life now? How, how, 
going from that experience now to being a pastor and travel the world teaching, um, how has that experience impacted your life and shaped your character? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, I got converted just before I went to university. At that time, I'd already been offered a scholarship to study uh, my state to go that way. Within about a year, I began to sense that God was calling me to the work of ministry, and I responded to that. Uh, so somewhere in 1980, I said to the Lord, if you want me to save you as a pastor, I am willing. And beyond that day, I gave myself to any opportunity that presented itself by way of uh, you know, youth ministry, uh, handling crash at a church that is you know handling the little children um, so that their parents could uh, attend to the the service. Uh, I was involved in a lot of student work on campus. In fact, I became the primary leader of uh, our campus fellowship, which comprised roughly eleven percent of the entire student population in due season. I was also made the primary student leader for the whole nation in um, the um, Zambia Fellowship of Evangelical Students. So in many ways, my life was involved in a number of those activities. Then that's when Kawata Baptist Church also began, and I was also involved in the outreach work there. Well, the time came for me to graduate, and then I moved out of the capital city where the university was, and at that time it was the only university in the whole country, and then moved over to um, um, the copper mining area. And at that point, it became the uh, my home for about three years. Working with miners is working with tough-tested individuals. But trust me, they have a soft spot uh, for the gospel as well. Mm -hmm. And so I really enjoyed ministering to the students, rather to the minors, uh, both at work and also in their residential area. Minors tend to stay in, in one huge housing estate. And so they know one another and, and so forth. So it was... Uh, a grand opportunity uh, to do that as well. Until in the third year of my laboring there, the church I had been involved in starting then called me to go and be their pastor. And that's how I quit my job and came back into the capital city to pastor Kawata Baptist Church. I loved mining. Uh, the, the, that's not something I was wanting to run away from. Uh, it was very fulfilling because you, you actually made progress that you could see. Every day yeah. you had targets that you had to meet. Um, you were also dealing with individuals who uh, were, were looking death in the face. And so there was no superficial kind of life and living. Uh, so, yeah, 
uh, I enjoyed that, but at the same time, I was longing for the day that I would hold the plow with both hands. Uh, those areas of, of mining companies, uh, are those well thought about by the church? Like, what, what I mean is, are churches sending evangelists to those places and starting church, starting churches in those places, or is it a neglected area? Um, well, the the it was an integrated area before copper was found. Uh, it was the last area for missionaries to evangelize in Zambia. But as soon as copper was found, there was a a rush of the Zambian population into the area. And as they rushed from different parts of uh, um, Zambia, or I would say Central Africa, and the, the missionaries also came with them and planted churches according to the different denominations and tribes that were now in this common area. So it was definitely not a neglected area after copper was found. Okay. Great. Uh, some interesting history. Uh, let's come back to the present, though. In your work as a pastor today, I know that, uh, you, again, your, your ministry is varied, but let's just focus on the pastoring for a moment. What do you enjoy most about being a pastor? What is the most rewarding aspect for you or that gives you joy as a pastor? Uh, preaching. I have no hesitation in saying that. I love the fact that uh, I have a, uh, a congregation to preach to that I keep meeting with regularly, which is very different from a, an evangelist who's going from place to place. Um, I, I get the opportunity to, to sink my roots into not just the ground, but into the lives of uh, these individuals. Um, I find it um, refreshing when I see individuals that I was once evangelizing who are now my fellow elders in the church. So over the years, they've matured and I can trust them 100% with the kind of oversight decisions that they have to make. Uh, seeing every year new lives being converted, mm. being baptized, being added to the church. Uh, it's, it's just the best thing uh, that can happen to anybody. Yeah. So that's the one bit that I am grateful for um, in my pastoral work. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I listened to some of your sermons myself. I appreciate how it, it looks like you often will preach through a book. Is that right? Uh, like yes. through a whole yes, book I of do. the Bible? Yeah. Um, as you preach through books, uh, what has been what has been the favorite book that you've preached through? And I'm also wondering, too, have you preached through the whole Bible or you still have a ways to go? All right, first of all, the last question. No, I haven't preached through the Bible. I tend to take sections 
uh, in the Old Testament, then I go to sections in the New Testament, then Old Testament, I just try to balance in that way so that God's people have a more uh, holistic view of the entire Bible. And then we also read chapter by chapter in the whole Bible. So we go from beginning to end. Uh, we'll do Old Testament, the New Testament, then Old Testament again, and so forth. So that again enables our people to have a, a growing understanding of the whole Bible. In terms of the one book that I enjoyed the most preaching from is the book of Romans. Uh, Romans, uh, I think, by any uh, estimation, is is probably uh, the, the greatest piece of Christian writing um, that can be found anywhere. And of course, inspired uh, by, by God as well. Uh, it gives you the length and breadth and height and depth of uh, salvation as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, it stands up like Mount Everest compared to Mount Kilimanjaro uh, in the Bible. Did you say something about the people of your church are reading through the whole Bible together over like a year or something? Um, no, what we do is every Sunday we read a chapter, but we are making okay. our way from one end of the Bible to the other. Okay. Uh, this brings me to another just uh, kind of random question. But I'm curious to know what you think. I was talking to a group of pastors uh, here in Uganda the other day, and uh, we were talking about how many times Scripture is read in a church service um, or how much of it is read. So you're saying that you read a full chapter uh, of Scripture each Sunday? Yes, each service. So uh, we have a chapter in the morning service. We also have a chapter in the evening service. Okay. Apart from the section that I will preach from. So that's, that's how much there is. Yeah. So that 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 chapter that the church hears, that's where the preaching will also come from? Or that's another reading that will come? It's just completely independent. We call it the okay. consecutive reading of scripture so it's just continuous do you have uh specific people in the church that do that reading as a ministry or they practice reading it and uh before yeah. the church service yes yes we have uh, roughly four or five individuals that take turns and uh, every so often when we've got somebody else who's interested we add and then someone leaves and so on so uh, but roughly four or five individuals that take turns to read. Okay. All right. Good. Um, sometime I'd love to talk to you more about preaching, but for now, um, let's let's hear more about your your ministry in general. Um, a lot of the pastors I talk to have a lot of challenges. It's not an easy kind of position to be in. What are some of the challenges that you faced as a pastor, or even if we put it this way, how? How have you suffered because of serving as a pastor? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the main way in which I can think about that is when individuals become disaffected towards me. And it has happened enough times over my 35 years of pastoring Kawata Baptist Church. 
uh, I would say roughly every five years, uh, I have a deep DIP. And, you know, somebody decides I'm, I'm his worst enemy or I'm her worst enemy. And they, they have to try and find reasons why I am I'm the worst pastor on the planet and so on. So attacks begin. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, they join hands with individuals who previously had gone on rampage and were, so to speak, arrested and brought back to sanity. And it's like it was just simmering in the background. And when the new opposition comes, they again join hands. So I think that's what has been the most difficult emotionally, uh, especially with individuals that have helped. Their marriage was falling apart and I've spent countless hours helping them to, uh, to, to mend their marriage. And then later on, over some flimsy excuse, um, you know, I'm not worth listening to. Um, sorry, this thing I thought I'd got rid of it. Um, so it, it's that which really uh, affects me uh, the most. Um, it's quite a challenge. But beyond that, um, I think the pastoral ministry has been a, a, a joyful ride. Uh, for me, um, uh, apart from the disaffected individuals, it's been very positive, and I'm I'm very grateful to God for the congregation that has grown uh, under the name Kabwata Baptist Church. Yeah, and I love hearing that love and affection you have for the church. Uh, I know uh, because I see some of the, the ministries you're up to that you know you have a lot of invitations to teach around the world and writing books, of course, but what always is consistent is your love for the church that you're pastoring and your commitment to them, um, which is just really encouraging to see. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the different ministries that you do. And I, I want to come at it this way, because I think for those listening, this might be really helpful. Uh, you're doing a lot of things. You're on boards, you're um, teaching, you're preaching, you're pastoring, you're writing. What kind of habits do you have or what kind of routines or ways that you plan and structure your life in order to accomplish many things? I, I imagine you must be quite organized in your schedule to to be able to fit all of that in, but it, we would love to learn from you what what kind of life rhythms do you have that um, have helped you to be able to do such different kinds of, of ministries? Yeah. Yeah, well, perhaps part of it is uh, the training that I had as an engineer. As an engineer, you tend to think systems um, rather than simply activities. So you tend to think of uh, you know who is supposed to do this when are they supposed to do it who else is within uh, that context uh, what is it that is priority now what is it that can be postponed 
um, how much can this truck carry at any one time and so on uh, so that it sort of gets burnt into your subconscious and so a lot of the things I, I'm surprised that people can't see that they are functioning outside the system uh, and so forth and therefore they are frustrating themselves I think for me uh, that background may have informed the way in which I came into pastoral ministry, or maybe it's just uh, in my genes, uh, the way in which, uh, you know, God wires us up. So I have found that uh, the church has evolved into um, a, a well-oiled machinery. You know, everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, well, at least the older people, new ones, um, get it lost and uh, so through the church a lot gets done and um, then coming to myself as a person uh, I've, I've from the beginning prioritized my wife my children uh, those have had a, a, a very um, sanctified precious place in, in my life and ministry well, all my children have now grown up, they've left home, and now I'm just with my wife. But that's the way life was uh, for the first 20 uh, to 30 years. My children had a very special place um, together with, with my wife. Our family devotions were usually in the evenings, um, and it, it was just after dinner, and, and the children just knew this is the time we gather together, pray together, read the Bible together, and so forth. So, uh, and I deliberately tailor made the teachings to their age range. So, the older they grew, uh, the more complex what we're dealing with was, and therefore I maintained uh, that interest. So, the family definitely had that that place. Um, then my own. Uh, devotions, with, which um, have continued, you know, since I was in university, uh, I learned what was called a quiet time with the Lord, reading the Bible uh, and praying, and and having a system of handling one's prayer request so that I'm not praying for the same things every day. So I, I have a two-month uh, prayer calendar which began when I was first year university or second year as a one-week prayer calendar. And it's sort of grown and grown and grown. Now it sort of covers uh, two, two months so that I, I'm praying for different people and different churches and different pastors and uh, friends and church members and so on uh, any one day. So that, that's the way it's been. Um, I do have times of uh, recreation. Uh, I love bird watching. I love photography. So that's also something that brings uh, refreshment to my life. Beyond that, yeah, I just do my work. <laughs> I, I don't kill myself with doing the work, but I just do what needs to be done. Uh, the Lord's given me a number of assistants in the church as well. I have a, a, an office assistant who arranges all my travels, accommodation, and everything. 
because if you've ever done international travel, it's a it's a nightmare, especially on an yeah. African passport. It's even worse. You know, you're asking for visas for half the world. Uh, so she handles that. And then I've also got a ministry assistant who helps with uh, more ministry-oriented things. I mean, you, you've been tracking me down through a guy called Francis. Again, that's... Uh, uh, he's, he's my minister assistant, uh, making sure that balls are not being dropped along the way. So, yeah, and then there are a few other people that I just make sure I keep on a personal allowance so that they are also handling a number of items in the background. So you you said you get time for recreation. Do you have some time you take off each day or do you have one day a week that you take off? What? What is your plan for a rest? Yeah, well, it's more one day a week. My Monday is my day off. It's it's not as straightforward as I would like it to be because I'm currently functioning between two institutions, the church and the university. And even at the university, as I said earlier, I have two responsibilities, the rate of advancement, and I'm also the acting dean of uh, the School of Divinity. So every so often I find that my Monday is being demanded in one or two of these areas. But that's my deal. And uh, as much as I possibly could, I shut out the world and just do what I would call you know, domestic chores, uh, fix that run into town for this that my wife wants me to do and so on and so forth so sort of close out the um the the demand of both church and university mm -hmm. what what other kinds or what what does your typical week look like do you have other habits or routines that you have like um you know, when, when do you do your quiet time, for example? I'm asking this just because for other pastors I work with who may be listening, you know, the idea is good, but people call, they get busy, and it can be difficult to fit in time for reading God's Word or time for reading books, uh, let alone writing. So what are some of the habits you could share with the listeners that might help them to be more disciplined, I guess, or more intentional? Yeah, yeah. Well, with respect to the, the, the time of reading the Bible and praying, it's it's almost inevitably in the morning, uh, soon after I wake up, before I go into the rest of the day. Uh, currently, with my uh, children all grown up, my wife and I now, we've moved all that into the morning. So we really together spend time in the word and prayer uh, in the morning before we head out. So that's that's uh, on on that end. In terms of general reading, my wife is a better reader than I am. If we look on the two sides of our bed, hers is a power that's that's almost touching the ceiling. Okay, I'm joking, but you understand what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Whereas on my side of the bed. There'll probably be right now. I'm thinking there are there about two or three books at the most uh, that are there. 
Um, so my wife is definitely the more gifted reader. Uh, and she really amazes me. When I bought any book, the last thing I should do is to show her because the moment I show her, she gets it out of my hands. And before I know it, she's reading it. Um, so, but having said that, I read more like um, uh, an African chicken in the village. Okay. You know, so I, I don't read <laughs> systematically through a book from okay. one end to the other. I, I scratch around for information. And so in that sense, I rarely read a book from cover to cover. Uh, I, I, there's a chapter I want to read. There's a topic I want to read. And so, yeah, these are the books that have it. I quickly pull out those books. I read on that chapter, rather that topic, and so on. That's the kind of uh, reading that I have. Um, unless it's uh, maybe I'm doing a book review. So then I tend to go from one end of the book to the other. But generally speaking, my reading is can be best described as haphazard, but deliberately so. So glorified haphazard reading. <laughs> I like that. Um, as you're as you're reading, what are some of the <clears throat> the things that you're hoping to study soon? <clears throat> some of the topics you're hoping to reflect more on soon in your reading. Well, that's more to do with uh, books that are ahead of me that I would therefore be working on. Uh, one of them is definitely in the first chapter of Philippians. So I that's really the next uh, major uh, task on my hands that I'll need to uh, spend some, some time in. So um, I, I will be plunging into that. I'm trying to think in terms of what my next other is oh, notifications. I don't think of what other title it might be, but uh, I can't think of one at the moment in terms of topic. It's okay. Is there something that if you got enough free time, enough time to rest, is there something you would like to learn how to do? Well, once upon a time, it was my dream to learn carpentry. I really would have loved to go for a short course and then spend some time with uh, piles of wood, turning them into something that... Uh, you know, uh, is beautiful. Mm. That's something that I, I once would say I would have wished I learned. Uh, but, you know, now I'm above 60 and <laughs> there's my my spare time is largely crowded out. It's never so too late. You I, can still learn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so I think that's that's uh past so if if anything i think it's just more of uh uh farming because um my, my wife and i uh, recently got some land that we hope to put up a, a small house so that when um you know i'm i'm told that you're now too old to be a pastor i can at least retire there, I'll still be reading, I'll still be writing, I'll still be doing a bit of preaching, but it'd be good to to make my hands dirty with soil and, mm. uh, yeah, spend the rest of my days there. That sounds good. We're, we don't have much time left. I wanted to make sure to ask you 
um, this question. The, you have experience working with North Americans and, of course, with a lot of different African churches. What are some of the things that you would like to see uh, the North American church and the African church? I know that's kind of general, but because um, there's a lot of diversity in both places. But in general, what can we learn from each other? What What would you like African churches to learn from North American churches? What would you like North American churches to learn from African churches? Yeah, well, I think first of all, um, I would say the importance of doctrine, sound doctrine, um, would be something I would say, in fact, really, I would say to both the uh, African church as well as the North American church. Uh, the, I've traveled around the world and there's no doubt in my mind that where there is faithful doctrinal expository preaching, you have a, a growing uh, maturity and health in the churches. So that I would say on both ends. But if one was to say, okay, learning from uh, the other, uh, I would definitely say that the Western church or the American church, learning from the African church, the, the sense of uh, the one another's the, that are there in the Bible, the, the, the communal life of the people of God. Now, in Africa, it comes out more naturally because that's still the way we, we live in the community. And so the, the church benefits from that. In the Western world, there's a very sort of privatized kind of life. Um, so sort of um, each one for himself, but good for us all. And, and the need to, to, to get God's people to weave their lives into uh, each other, one another's lives, for the glory of God, I think is something that uh, the the Western Church perhaps would need to uh, to do better in terms of learning from uh, the, the the African context. Mm -hmm. If I was to put it the other way around, um, in terms of what the African Church needs to to learn from the uh, the Western Church or American Church, one of the areas is simply that of building on uh, the, the history of the Christian church, uh, preserving that history and then building on it. Uh, our people just don't preserve history. They don't write it down. They, and therefore they are making the same mistakes over and over and over again that others have ended up making. And that explains partly why syncretism has grown so much in Africa. And it's at the hands of largely just boys who are claiming to become preachers and prophets and so on. And it's because we have not documented what the those that went down that road have since become and the disaster that came out of it. Um, so learning to build on that history uh, so that 
the, the church is benefited. Um, the average person will tell you in Africa about Spurgeon, about uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther. Uh, they'll tell you about all these uh, names. Um, uh, William Carey, um, uh, David Livingstone himself, and so forth. Uh, but they, they don't know the lives of the preachers that have been in their own country for the last uh, 50 or so years, and perhaps have even gone to glory. Uh, and therefore, we are unable to build on that foundation. And I would really say that that's something we can learn from the North American church. That, that's such an interesting comment about the church history. For, for pastors who are listening to this podcast, would you advise them to just start uh, writing down what they heard or to interview, I, I guess, interview people, older people in the churches and start writing down their stories? Like, wh what what ideas do you have practically for how, how that could work? What I say to people here, which often amazes me, is that in our churches, we have historians, we have academicians, we have professionals who should be doing this work. We can't keep relying on the same people who are preaching to be the same ones again seeking to document things. Um, yeah. it's, it's us who are trained professionally who therefore know, for instance, the tools of research who really should be doing these things because history is God's story and we need to preserve those providences of the past to learn from them and they will therefore uh, encourage our faith for the future. So, uh, yes, pastors can uh, keep their uh, diaries, they can keep their um, letters or emails, they can uh, keep uh, memorabilia that individuals can then come and uh, uh, get information from. But it's those individuals that I'm talking about who need to pull up their socks and be uh, the, the Luke, the physician that gave us the, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. They can be uh, individuals like that. Connected to that question about what we can learn from each other in North America and Africa, uh, as we work together in God's mission and evangelism, reaching the lost and theological education, discipleship, what is the best way for North American church and the African church to be working together in that mission? What do you hope to see more of in terms of healthy partnership and working together? All right. Thank you. I think, first of all, for me, it's always information, information flow. I think it's important to uh, know what's happening in Africa, know what's happening in, in North America. Uh, the news that we often get uh, through CNN, um, BBC, and so on, is largely uh, news that is bereft of what is happening to the brethren. So there's the, the war in Ukraine, 
We don't have information from the actual believers who are there to be able to pray for them intelligently. There is the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. We don't have information from actual brethren there and so forth. So there needs to be a deliberate way in which the North American church will say, okay, there are Christian leaders in Africa. Let's at least connect with a few of them so that we have information from there that is hot of the press that enables us to know what's happening. We can even pray for them. The same in Africa, we should do the same, where we connect with brethren in North America. We are receiving information from there. We can pray for them. We can praise the Lord for them intelligently. And it is from information flow that we then begin to say, ah, there's this area that perhaps we can help with. And that's when partnering begins because you are hearing news from the ground and you are able to say, can we do this together? Now, in some areas, you find that the African church will have men and women to send out into missions work, but they may not have the resources. The American church may say we have the resources, financial resources, but not the men to send into that area because we've come to the, the, the way forward. So news first, and then praying together for one another, and then from there, doing actual tangible projects together. It might be theological training. Uh, I think the Western Church has a lot of people that are uh, qualified to the highest levels from well-resourced um, colleges, seminaries, and so on, who can therefore come and help us to enrich our own theological education. Uh, in Africa, it might be relief projects, it might be um, church planting efforts, uh, and so forth. So a lot can be done together once we have news and we are praying for one another. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we need to come to the close now to honor our time. Uh, maybe we can just end with the very last question of what would you like the listeners to pray for you about? For you or your family or for your church, uh, what can what can the listeners be praying for you about? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think the main thing uh, at the moment is uh, um, very current. We have a missions week coming up um, in two weeks' time, actually more like 10 days' time. So... Um, um, I think I'm right. Yeah, in 10 days. So if we just pray for that, we have our own missionaries coming in and um, double the number of being others who are not our own missionaries who will also be with us. So altogether about 40 um, missionaries coming to our church. There's a lot involved in preparing for that. So would really appreciate that. And then with respect to the university, uh, we've just begun a new year. Uh, I was there today seeing slightly over 100 new students coming in. That's exciting stuff, but we need to raise money for them uh, because most of them, there's no way 
they can meet the cost of that education. So do pray for us, first of all, for the financial resources to be able to educate these um, many students. And these are just first-year students we're talking about who are joining, who've just joined us. And then, of course, we, we really want the Lord to use us to impact these young lives uh, so that by the time they finish their studies with us, they will be um, salt and light in the world uh, for the glory of God. So those are the two major prayer requests that I would present. All right. I know that people will be praying for you. I will also pray for you. Thank you so much, Conrad, for this conversation. Uh, it was nice just to get to know you and hear more about how how your your life rhythms are to help you to um, do the ministries that you do, and also the wisdom you've shared about the church, about partnership. I'm very grateful. Thank you for this time. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for the opportunity.